Oh, I like it. I can see the lights from home. Some folks see the end of their world here. I see the beginning of another one on the way. I'm thankful for it. 1 John chapter 2 is our text passage. Fifteen years ago, I preached a message for the first time from this passage of Scripture about what's going on in the text and the context of the third generation. I'm going to use a part of that sermon in the introduction this evening and talk to you about the third generation of Christianity. Just to tell you by way of introduction, it appears that in the third generation of Christianity there is such a relaxing from the first generation that we go from strong believers to canceling the culture that they grew up in and denying the faith of God. I want to show it to you throughout the Word of God and to preach a message tonight to challenge us and help us to continue to reach young people for Christ. Folks, we've got to reach this generation of young people with the gospel of Christ. I'm thankful for programs, but without the Word of God, the program is useless. And oh, how we need Scripture and how we need the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you give me wisdom. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to receive and everybody learn how we can be involved in reaching another generation of young people with the word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The writer John has witnessed the downward spiral of the generation in, of the generations in John's first epistle. He is remembering and his heart is grieved because of a lack of compassion on the part of Christians who are just three generations from the person and ministry of Jesus himself. In just the third generation, John watches as the church has lost its fervor, it's lost its passion, and its willingness and boldness to stand for truth. The third generation was nothing like the first generation of Christians who had served Christ to their death. They had actually turned the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Toward the end of the first century, there were three major heresies that had made their way into the churches. First of all, there was a denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. They were saying, he's a good man, but he's just a man. He is not God in the flesh. That's a heresy. The truth is, Jesus was the God-man. He was as much God as he was man, as much man as he was God. The Bible tells us in the book of Philippians that he humbled himself and deity took upon himself the form of flesh. There was a denial of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus wasn't God, his death on Calvary was useless, and you and I are lost sinners. I'm glad tonight that he was not just a man, but he was God dying in our place. Second of all, there were those that denied the humanity of Christ, saying... He was just a phantom, a ghost, a spirit, an imagination that caused a movement. There was a third heresy that thought Jesus was just a man who did 
great things because he was visited of God. But God would leave him and go back to heaven, leaving him just a common man. Those were three heresies that had made their way into the early New Testament church. John knew better than all of this because he had been with Jesus. He had heard him preach and teach. He had seen him heal. He had seen him perform the miracles, including the feeding of the multitudes and the raising of the dead. That John himself had lived through a turbulent century politically as far as Rome was concerned. Of the 12 Caesars, only two had died natural deaths. Nero had launched the empire of Rome with the 300-year persecution of the church. As time went along, the persecution of the church and Christians were awful. They weren't writing hate crime bills or uh, taking away tax-exempt status. They were putting Christians to death simply for preaching that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day. So many died a martyr's death for preaching the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. John lived through the beginning of this persecution and he saw the church flourish in spite of the persecution, almost seemingly to be fueled by the persecution and certainly filled with the power of the Holy Spirit as the church grew miraculously and exponentially uh, through that period of time. However, John watched the second generation of Christians come along and lose some of their zeal and some of their passion. The third generation quickly came and they slipped further into the coldness and deadness of a backslidden condition. Imagine, if you will, the old man John. He is surrounded by, he is seated and surrounded by young people. And he is working to convince them not to lose or to have any different Christianity than what the first generation did, not to lose their zeal and their passion. He writes, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children because you have known the father. I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Listen as he pleads with them as he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. Progression produces digression from the truth. The world looks at this succession of a generation as a progressive movement. 
You look at our world today and what they call progressive is anything but progressive. It is digressive when you compare it to the word of God. Obviously, a digression is found in the second and third generation of Christians. The first generation is motivated by conviction. Please stay with me. They've grasped the truths that have not only saved them, but have changed their lives. They have felt the pain of sin. They've seen it in reality. And they've escaped that life of sin and the punishment of sin by coming to Christ as Savior. And they held the truth in great conviction. They're motivated by a passion to propagate these truths to their generation. And these men of this first generation are willing to give all, risk all, dare all, and fight to their deaths. The second generation inherits these truths. They've never felt the pain of sin. They've never smelled the stench of sin. They've never felt the loneliness of sin. They've grown up in a good home. Their parents have kept them from the sin that would ruin and destroy their lives. They don't have memories of being out in sin. Their memories are church and church activities. And so often these, they change or soften the truths from conviction to beliefs. They believe what their parents taught them. They believe the truths that have been taught by their fathers, but they're willing to debate them and work to defend them, but the fire and passion was just not like it had been with their fathers. The third generation comes and they change their beliefs from conviction to belief to now it is our opinion. They went from the first generation's conviction willing to fight, willing to die for what they believe, to the second generation's belief and now the third generation's opinion and they respect everyone's opinion equally. This book I hold tonight is not my opinion. This is the word of God. I have no right to reduce it anything less than what it is, the unvarnished truth of God. The third generation trades truth for acceptance. They want to be in the gang. They want to be accepted. They want to be liked. Now, they're nostalgic about these truths, but they're not willing to lose anything for them. They, these things seem to them old-fashioned as an old wooden cracker barrel uh, would today as you go in and you may see a ringer washing machine and know what it is, and you may see some things of the past generation, and it makes a good decoration, but it's out of date and not for today. The third generation makes excuses for the fire and passion of their fathers and forefathers. They would say, well, Grandpa didn't have a very good education. He was excited about what he did. He didn't know any better. He did the best he could. And usually, the best he could was a whole lot better than the third generation's highly educated crowd ever thought about doing. 
I was listening to one of my dad's sermons the other day. It was recorded, I believe, in 1984. And he talked about being born again. That's not proper. That's not the way you say it. But he got more people born again by his old-fashioned preaching than some of the most educated I know today that know how to say every word, but they don't do any of it. The third generation brought in the opinion of the other side and placed them beside their opinion. They allowed their children to make their own choices as to what direction they wanted to go, and most of them chose the wrong direction. God didn't give them parents to say, you decide. God gave them parents to say, this is what's right, and this is how we're going to live. It was the third generation that John wrote to to stir them to a revival of passion and commitment to truth that was once delivered to the saints, the truths that he believed and that uh, for which his brothers had died. He wrote to the third generation to plead with them and warn them that if they didn't return to the truths of their fathers, they not only would lose their freedom, but worse than that, their children would never know the joy of salvation. I want you to take your Bible and go to the book of Joshua in chapter 24. Here's what's interesting. It seems that it's the third generation every time that waters down the truth to the place that we have a generation that doesn't know God. Now, there are many examples. Let's begin with this one. I'm not sure how many we'll get through tonight. Uh, but Joshua chapter 24, notice, if you will, in verse number 13. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them of the vineyards and olives which ye planted uh, not to do ye eat. Uh, this is the first generation that has, uh, that has received the blessings of the Lord. Now, if you look at American history, you'll see about every hundred years, you'll see a challenge and then you'll see a first generation choose to do what's right. Second generation generation follows, enjoys the blessings. Third generation spends all the blessings. Fourth generation didn't know anything about God. For example, in the early 1600s, our forefathers were facing persecution in England. They came to America for religious freedom. And when I say religious freedom, I'm not talking about to spread the religions of the world, but Christianity or faith in Christ. Because all of the pilgrims uh, uh, or all of those on the Mayflower, they signed the Mayflower Compact that their purpose of coming to America was not to build houses and not to make great wealth, but their purpose to come, they were, they were fleeing religious persecution. Their purpose of coming, friend, was to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why they came. They came because of that. We see the same thing happening in 1720. If you uh, studied the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they had the same philosophy. They would build a place where God was the center of their lives. Uh, they would build a school or a church, and uh, they would have church in the school or, or school in the church. It was the same building, and they had the same textbook on Sunday that they had uh, during the week uh, as their preachers were getting older. Uh, and I'm telling you American history, and what I'm telling you tonight is the reason the woke crowd wants to destroy American history because what I'm telling you, the preachers, as they began to get old, they said we have to have institutions to train our young men to 
to be preachers because we not only need pastors in our churches, we need to send missionaries to places around the world that need to hear the gospel. And that's why Harvard was, was, was started, was founded. That's why Yale was founded. Dartmouth College, they focused on getting the gospel to Indians. They all focused, they all were, were teachers and students of the Bible. This was the main textbook. You couldn't get a job there if you believed in the stupidity of evolution. They, they all believed in creation. They all believed that God was the creator and God was the giver of all of men's rights. In fact, they wrote that in the very Declaration of Independence. Our rights are not government given. Our rights are God given. By the way, Transylvania University began just like this. It began in 1780 before Kentucky became a state. Uh, they were in what is now uh, the Danville area. And uh, uh, the first uh, textbook they had, the first professor, David Rice, uh, used this King James Bible right here that I'm preaching from tonight. 1792, they moved to where uh, closely to where they are now. And when Kentucky became a state in 1792, uh, Transylvania University used to be a place that taught the gospel of Jesus Christ and trained preachers as many did of that era. 1930s was the same. 1930s, the Great Depression came. These were difficult days of little to no food and, and items. They didn't have much. Without a doubt, those were days to prepare a nation to defend its freedom. I want you to think about this. 1930s, the Great Depression. Hunting wasn't a sport. It was a necessity. Gardening wasn't a hobby. It was a requirement if you, want, if you wanted to eat. And there was a generation of people who had a faith in God. The children of the Great Depression were the soldiers of World War II. I want to say that again. The children... Of the Great Depression, those boys, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, those were the fellows of the Great Depression in the 30s that became the soldiers of World War II. They were what we refer to, and I agree with this assessment, of the greatest generation. And as in the days of Joshua, that generation paid a price for freedom that we did not have to pay. You and I are the recipients of that price paid by that great generation in World War II. Now go back, if you will, to Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 13. I give you a land uh, for which you did not labor and cities that you built not. You dwell in them of the vineyards and olive yards uh, which you planted not, uh, uh, nor uh, planted not do ye eat. Look at uh, chapter 24, verse number 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. Now, this next generation after Joshua, they knew of the works of the Lord. They knew what God had done for Joshua. 
They knew what God had done to deliver them from Egypt and part the waters of the Red Sea and bring them across the wilderness and, and bring them into the land of Canaan. They knew the battles that they had fought against the giants and won and conquered the land. They knew that their fathers had paid a great price. This next generation is living in a land they did not fight for, they did not pay for, they were recipients of that. There's a third generation. Take your Bible and go to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 and look at verse number 7. I need to move a little quicker. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance of timnath Heres, in the mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gaish. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation. This is the third. Another generation after them which knew not the Lord. And yet the works which he had done for Israel... And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. Notice this is just the third generation now. We started at the end of the Bible as John writes to that third generation after Christ and he saw the, uh, the loss of zeal and passion to the place that uh, some of them did not know Christ. And we go all the way back here uh, to the days of Joshua and then the elders that outlived uh, Joshua. And then the third generation, uh, they didn't know the Lord. Now, I don't have time tonight to go through all the stories of World War II, but you know people that survived and made it through the war because there were praying mothers and praying fathers and praying churches that prayed them through miraculously through that war. If you understand what I'm saying about wait, raise your hand or say amen, you know that generation of World War II, they knew the Lord. Now the next generation, that, that group of elders that, that had seen the work of the Lord, that's that generation after World War II, that's the most prosperous of any generation. And then another generation has come. Do you know we live in a land tonight? And I, I say this, but I, I, I can't hardly believe it. Of the 40-some books that have been challenged that should not be in our public schools in 2021-2022, I hold in my hand the book that's been outlawed. I know there are a few classes and a few places where this book is, but, but this is not taught in our schools anymore. This is what our schools started with right here. Now we're to the place of that third generation. Now we're at the place that they are attacking what the first generation did, trying to deny and even destroy the history and heritage and faith of the first generation. 
First generation is typically a spiritual generation after a challenge such as a war or the pilgrims coming to America or what we faced in the early 1700s with the taxation that eventually birthed our nation and independence in 1776. And you look at the challenges of the 1800s that brought about a revival, the challenges of the 1900s that brought about World War I and then World War II. And, and you see those challenges and that first generation after that challenge is a spiritual generation but Paul wrote to the church at Corinth he said the trouble here is we have too many folks that are in neutral they're carnal they live life saying all the time I don't see anything wrong with this don't see anything wrong with this and there's no spiritual charge there's no spiritual fire there's no spiritual zeal at all they're just carnal yes thankful for the spiritual people yes we applaud the spiritual people but they themselves are carnal and then we come to the third generation after the carnal generation they're an unsaved generation look at Abraham a man of faith his son Isaac, a man of following. His son Jacob, a man of folly. A deceiver, a conniver. Thank God Jacob had a third generation revival. Before his life was wrecked and ruined, he produced the 12 sons or tribes of Israel. The first generation is convinced to serve God. The second generation is conflicted about serving God because they don't want to be inconvenienced. There's so many opportunities for prosperity. There's too much opportunity for overtime work. Just, I, I came to preach tonight. You came to hear preaching, didn't you? First generation, they were convinced to serve God. Second generation, they were conflicted. They had conflict. The third generation was a cancel culture. Getting rid of commitment to God. Getting rid of the history and heritage of their past. They excuse the ignorance of the first generation. I'm sorry, but we'll have to overlook your ignorance. The first generation was highly educated in my opinion. The first generation is a people generation. How may I help you? The second generation is a possession generation. What can I get for me? I need another television. I need an extra room in case my room gets messed up. I can go to this room. need a big refrigerator and a little refrigerator. I need a car uh, to drive on the weekends and a car to drive during the week and a truck in case I decide to move. And, and, and I need this and need more of that. The people generation, how may I help you? You didn't go to my grandparents' home without them giving you some kind of food. If you didn't come in to eat, they would give you some green beans or they would give you something that had been canned. They were a giving people. They didn't have much, but what they had, they wanted to share it. They were people generation. The second generation is the possession generation. And the third generation is the pride generation. And they're proud of their wicked sin. And they told us in the last generation, it's none of your business what we do in the bedroom. And now they march them on the, on the, in the parades downtown. You can't go to a parade anymore for the LGBTQ crowd because they're not the people generation. They're not the possession generation. They're the proud generation. There's King David. David was a shepherd king. He's willing to die for the sheep. He's willing to die for the lambs. 
God said, that's what kind of man. I want to be the king of my people. I want a shepherd king, one that's willing to die for the sheep. But then you had King Solomon. He didn't care about the people. He used the people to build the kingdom. He's like a politician that'll go to any church that's got a group together. They're not interested in the doctrine of the church, the people of the church. They're interested in the votes in the church. And they're like the king that's willing to build a temple for anybody just so you say, my name's on the plaque that built the building. That's Solomon's crowd. He brought all these women in and brought their religions with them. Then there's Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the rebel, and he divides the people, and he divides the nation. Heard division any lately? Have you seen any division lately? First generation is David. When Jesus returns, he's going to sit on the throne of not Solomon the kingdom builder, not Rehoboam the rebel. He's going to sit on the throne of David because Jesus, my dear friend, didn't come to build a kingdom. He came to lay down his life and he died for the people. I'm going to heaven tonight, not because of who I am or what I've done. I'm going to heaven tonight because Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, laid down his life on the cross of Calvary and paid my sin debt for me. Adolf Hitler changed Germany and influenced the entire world. Hitler recognized that Germany was a Bible-believing people the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Predominantly Lutheran, then Presbyterian. There were many uh, Protestants. There were German Baptists and Brethren. Hitler knew that the adults, he knew that the German adults were not going to listen to his lies and they would throw him out on his head. So he didn't even attempt to take the faith of the adults away. So Hitler began a program called the Hitler Youth. Youth organization of the Nazi party in Germany. Its origins date back to the 20s, but very strong in 1933, 1934. It was the sole official boys' youth organization in Germany. It was partially a parliamentary, I'm sorry, paramilitary organization. It was composed of the Hitler Youth proper for male youths ages 14 to 18. The German youngsters and the Hitler Youth for younger boys group was age 10 up to age 14. One reason Hitler Youth so easily developed was that regimented organizations often focused on politics. Now, let me define that. Politics was a political leader promising the people what they wanted. Anytime you get what you want, you're in trouble. Let's forget the government, just talk about you and I. If you and I do tomorrow what we want to do, we're going to get in trouble. We have to do what the Spirit says to do, right? You drive very much tomorrow. Somebody's going to pull out in front of you. Somebody's going to make you mad. If you do what you want to do, you're going to get in trouble. We can't do what we want to do in life. But Hitler began to focus on politics and the importance and power of politics. What he was really saying, you need to pay attention to what people are saying and what 
potential political candidates can give you. He focused on adolescent boys. Numerous youth movements existed across Germany prior to and especially after World War I. They were created for various purposes. Some were religious, others were ideological. But the more prominent ones were formed for political reasons. They used names like, interpreted into English, young conservatives and the young Protestants. Now, I want to tell you, I preach this all over the country. I'm afraid of Christians that have left their Christianity for the Republican Party. I'm worried about Christians that have left their Christianity. I want to tell you something. I'll die for that book. I am about to die for a conservative movement because conservative movements are always changing directions and trying to figure out which way the wind's blowing. I serve the one that makes the winds blow. Once Hitler came onto the revolutionary scene, the transition from seemingly innocent youth movements to political entities, these boys no longer 14 to 18, but 18 to 22, they were viewed as ensuring the future of Nazi Germany. They were indoctrinated in Nazi ideology, including prominently racism. The Hitler Youth appropriated many of the activities of the Boy Scout movement, which was banned in Germany in 1935. However, over time, it changed into content and intention. After time, he revealed who he really was, what he was really trying to do, and he focused on the content and intention. Many of his activities closely resembled military training with weapons training, assault course uh, uh, circuits, basic tactics, and the aim was to turn Hitler youth into motivated soldiers. Sacrifice for the cause was instilled into their training. More than just a way to keep the German nation healthy, though it was introduced as health, and he began to talk about how he cared about their health, they began to introduce sports programs. Became a means for gathering yet another group of young men to indoctrinate and train the youth. Typical school days for Hitler youth included many more hours of sports and physical training than academic pursuits, practicing drill, physical tests, and trials, all with the ultimate goal of warfare. Their first means or their first uh, uh, exercises was to break up church youth groups. The few that were not indoctrinated under Hitler, the few that the parents saw through what was going on, the few that saw through. Now listen to what I'm about to tell you because I'm not just talking about Germany, I'm talking about America right now. The few that said, I'm not letting the public school do this to my children. They stayed in their youth groups, but Hitler sent his youth to those youth groups to break them up. Peer pressure is one of the greatest pressures in all of the world. They not only broke up youth groups, they broke up church services. They learned Nazi songs and they were taught to read Nazi books. Dear friend, the same thing is happening in our nation today. When they said, now look, 
We're not kicking God out of our school. We're trying to be fair to all the children. We don't want to shove religion down their throat. We want to be kind and teach them that they can choose. We don't want them to be unkind to one another. We want them to be kind. So, so, so we're going to let them have all religions, not just one. You see, we want to help everyone. That's how Hitler began. I know what the crowd's saying. I know what they, I know what they label me. They label me crazy. Make it with a capital C if you want to make it a capital C. Put Baptist crazy in front of it, if you will, with a capital B. Put Bible in front of that. I'm Bible and Baptist and crazy. I know what they say. We're not trying to do that to the children. Right now, schools are being flooded with books for kindergartners about things that you and I, 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 I'm reading through the book of Leviticus right now, you and I are not supposed to be talking about the corruption. You and I are not supposed to be talking about the corruption they're teaching children. So what do we do? We cannot sit here in a second generation and just be thankful for what God has done. Church, we must continue to invest to reach another generation of young people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single child in Christian homeschool, Christian school, Bible college, Sunday school classes. I, I, now listen, I love the sports program and, and, and there is a purpose for the sports program and the purpose is to say we can play and have fun and, and we, don't, we, don't, we, we don't have to curse we, we, don't, we can be Christians and enjoy life. The, the, the sports programs, we can have fun and still be a Christian. The camp is not just about camping. There is a purpose. That purpose is the truths of this Bible right here. And I say tonight, church, that, that building over there, we're not trying to just build a building. That, that is the least expensive form of a building that you can build today. You know why? Because we're not trying to build a monument. We're trying to build a tool to reach another generation of children to teach them the word of God. Stand with me. I, I, there's a lot more I want to say, but I've got another week coming. If the Lord comes, I'll tell you what I was going to tell you in heaven. Um, one of, one of the prayers I've prayed all of my life, I've known what happens as generations cool off. And I, I was blessed by a generation before me, the World War II generation of preachers. You talk about hard-hitting, old-time Baptist preaching. That's what I liked. Here's what I decided. I don't want my children to read about what that generation did. I decided I want God to do what he did in that generation for this generation, I want my children not to read about it. I want them to see that God is still alive and he's still powerful today. That's why we've got to keep every bus, every van, every car, every Sunday school class. We have to reach every child we can with the gospel of Christ. Let's not let this third generation die. We can see revival. And if I had time for another 30 minutes, I would tell you the generation that chose not to die. Josiah wasn't very smart. He's just a little boy. He was smart enough to read history. 
He said, you know, of all the kings that Israel's had, David was the most blessed of the Lord. Whatever David did, that's what I'm going to do. That's a smart boy. That generation had revival. Heavenly Father, help us not to...